You're listening to CITR FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show with special guest DJ... Roger Allen. Roger, you've brought in a whole bunch of music, and you've also arranged an interview that we're going to do with Walter from Gorilla Biscuits. Gorilla Biscuits, yeah. What could this be in honor of the hardcore show? What are you going to do today, the hardcore music show? Yeah, this should be like the most natural show that I've ever done on your program because uh, uh, hardcore music was the music that kind of came to me when I was a teenager, 18, 19, 17. So it makes perfect sense to have done it, but I've I've always shied away um, from doing it because it just seems so complicated. There's just so many. It just seems like such a complicated genre of music. But uh, here we are. It's not it's not the history of hardcore. We're I'm just trying to do a broad thing with it. <laughs> and you mentioned you've been on a Nardwar show before many times, haven't you? I have. Yeah. I've, uh, is this on? Yeah, it's totally on. <laughs> I yes. I can't hear myself, but um. Yeah, this is, oh my gosh, who knows? This is like the 50th hour worth of information I'm sending out with uh, your guidance, Nardwar. And we played right off the top, the middle class, some more confusion, wasn't there? That's very confusing, isn't it? The first hardcore record possibly, right? Uh, middle class, yeah. Well, most most regard um, the middle class 1979 re- release out of Vogue as being the first single to make the jump to short, fast, shouted songs. And the... Uh, Probably the obscureness of that album make it unlikely they influenced the two bands we most credit as starting hardcore like uh, Black Flag and Bad Brains. And with that, we are... Uh, how do I answer? How do I answer? Skype. Skype. <laughs> Click Skype. Start a conversation. <laughs> Hello! <laughs> Are you there, Walter? Yes, I am here. Can you see me? Because I can't see you. Yes, unfortunately, you cannot see us, but we can, can see, see you. you. Hooray! Okay. Walter, and people <laughs> actually heard you call me. People heard you call me. They yeah, heard, I was trying. They heard the Skype they heard the Skype noise. What can you so do? They know- they know it's real. They heard some Skype noise, and before that, they heard Roger, who helped arrange some of this interview. Hello, Roger. Say something. Say something. Something. Say something to Walter. Walter. Yeah, Walter is a huge... Uh, this is awesome. Can you hear Roger? Can you hear Roger? I can hear Roger. Yeah, he sounds super clear. Oh, I don't I, even know. I, actually, I think I can hear it from the phone, so I don't even need these headphones anymore for whatever it's worth. That is amazing. Now, Roger, could you tell... Basically, Walter, what we were doing? What 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 were we playing? Uh, we were just playing um, a very short song by the band The Middle Class. Oh, cool! And who are you, Walter? And what do you know about the Middle Class? The Middle Class. I think it's like a kind of older, like Danger Housey kind of era punk band. Uh, I'm not a fan, but I've heard the you know of them mentioned. Are they any good? You played them, Roger, because possibly they were the first hardcore record ever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, Walter, that the Danger House recording artists, the middle class, were the first hardcore band ever? I think, I guess there's probably different opinions about it, but I know Danger House is kind of like an old school label, like weirdos. So they they probably got in there. They had to be top five, I would guess. Roger? They... Well, they they um, were playing in L.A. same time as Black Flag, but uh, they were they were actually the second um, release. Black Flag released a, a song before them, but um, Middle Class 
played more shows and uh, they got a little recognition as being um, outsiders of the LA punk scene because they didn't dress like the germs. They dressed in jeans. They lived in the suburbs. Their album art was a picture of the suburbs. And uh, the punks kind of rejected them, and they created their own sound by shouting the songs and it going really quick. And therefore, that's kind of hardcore, right? I guess stylistically, yeah, it kind of sounds how it differentiates from punk. I'd say sure. From 1979. And you, Walter, who are you, Walter, exactly? For the people listening, who are you? Um, I'm a guy from New York. I've been in a bunch of different bands and hardcore bands and... um, kind of things that have sprung off of that and i've done some solo records some producing and um just a musician guy what bands have you been in for the listeners for the listeners what bands have you been in do you know all the bands you've been in do we have time for all the bands oh my gosh there's so many i mean the the first one i started with is gorilla biscuits which is one i started um i was in youth of today which is was a band that um was pretty big in the in the straight edge movement of the 80s and i played bass for youth today and uh i was in Warzone, which was a new york uh skinhead band and um i was in uh quicksand um and that was kind of more of a experimentally rock kind of uh band 90s kind of thing which we still make records um and uh rival schools is another one i've been in so many bands you know it's uh it's it's really been a journey at roger also mentioned mentioned the band moondog moondog yes moondog (laughs) yes that's it that's i don't even i don't even think to mention that one but that was kind of a cool one that was uh in between gorilla biscuits and uh quicksand and it was kind of taking aspects of hardcore and um doing some different things with it but it was just a demo and it got out um, into the tape trading world. And so it has its, you know, you have to be kind of like really looking for it, but it has its fans, which is, is very cool. And Walter, right off the bat, a hardcore question for you. What's the yeah. importance? What's the importance of Beavis and Butthead, the ultimate hardcore fans? <laughs> uh, Beavis and Butthead, I mean, they're just, you know, cultural, iconic um you know they were tastemakers in the early 90s make fun of stuff or rock out to it and they had some uh influence with people so quicksand were on on beavis and butthead and uh they made fun of us in one and and really liked us in another one so you know it's kind of a a wash i guess because they helped quite a few bands they helped siv and they uh, they also helped uh sorry c civ and they also helped babes in toyland as well beavis and butthead beavis and butthead Oh, can't, it can't be understated the, the, how important they were. You know, I wish they would. Where are they now? What are they doing now? They they could come back alive just as the exact same age, and it would be. I you know, I check it out. It was hilarious. What's it like, Walter, playing a roller rink? What's it like playing a roller rink? Like you play dire roller rink, dire. Yeah. What's it yeah. like playing a roller rink? I mean, it's got so much magic in a roller rink, the amount of good times that people have had in roller rinks, like just like uh, the idea of being on wheels and, uh, you know, learning that or, you know, going on a, on a first date or, um, you know, going with your friends. There's just like a lot of magic in a, in a roller rink and it's an old timey kind of thing. I guess roller rinks have been popular since the, you know, probably 50, 60 years. I don't know how, maybe a hundred years. So I think there's like that old-timey magic to it and so when you're taking 
your contemporary you know guitar music or hardcore music and putting it in that atmosphere it's just a, a cool contextual shift and what? so that's what it's like for me it's kind of like a non-traditional venue like an old yep. school venue not it was traditional for like buddy holly etc but what was it like playing that like did people actually skate you and what band were you in when you were playing roller ring and how many roller rings have you played hmm i'm going through my roller rink uh thing i think i've probably played more bowling alleys actually than roller rinks uh which is a similar kind of vibe. I guess it's just that kind of feeling of um, old-timey fun, you know, where you're you're doing something new and then you're putting it in, in a different kind of venue. Or, you know, you could play like a deconsecrated church, anything that's sort of like off the beaten path of just the regular bar venue kind of thing is always, always fun. And we're speaking here to Walter from... Uh, let's just go with quicksand. <laughs> Walter from quicksand. If anybody yeah. has any questions for Walter, it is 604-822-2487, 604-822-CITR. And right off the bat, also I was going to mention to you, well, it's not really off the bat, but 604-822-2487, 604-CITR, Ralph DeMarco Park. Ralph DeMarco Park. <laughs> Ralph DeMarco Park. Okay, so is that for me or is that some guy that just called up? No, that's for you. <laughs> that's for you, Walter. Ralph DeMarco Park right beside Astoria Park. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know. You know, it's like I don't know the names of the parks. So, I mean, sometimes these people did some really cool thing and, you know, maybe uh, I have no idea. Maybe wrote a, a cool book or something, but I, I wouldn't be able to, to, to differentiate. There was a park near my house in Astoria called Purple Park. But that was just the name for it because it had all these like purple uh, railings around it. And um, you could sit there, watch the East River. And uh, it's it's a yeah, it's a really pretty space. And our story parks really pretty, too. There's a um, a really old timey pool there that was built during um, the FDR, you know, kind of times, uh, you know, World War Two, 30s or something. Depression, I guess. And uh, we used to skateboard in it in the uh, in the spring and in the fall before they would fill it in. And uh, it, was, it was it was a cool, cool place to, to be a teenager. Where did you see the kraut sticker? You saw a kraut sticker. What pool did you see it on? Where did you see the kraut sticker? Was it in Ralph DeMarco Park? Was it? It was not in Ralph DeMarco Park. It was in the at the pyramids. There's this place in Storia called um, the pyramids. And it's these um, it's by a Con Edison electricity plant. And uh, it's not too far from um, from Rikers Island, which is a really infamous prison. But right there is this um, right near the entrance to, to go out there is this Con Edison plant. And they had these kind of pyramid like structures that were I, I don't know why they built them. There was like some 80s or 70s kind of thing. But uh, all the local kids figure out how to skateboard on them. So that's where all the punk kids would hang out. So. When I moved to Astoria, I moved neighborhoods, I saw um, a crowd sticker on a no parking sign right by the pyramids. And then I started skating at the pyramids and I met some of the other punk kids there, hardcore kids. And it was uh, in Rockaway. There wasn't any of that kind of stuff, really. So moving to Astoria was was a big deal for me. Big change. Walter of Quicksand, what was mm -hmm. Dwayne's on East 6th Street? Dwayne's on East 6th Street. Dwayne's. Oh, OK. That was uh the hub of new york hardcore um it was the record it was a record shop and in the record shop you know he maybe had 
I don't know, three bins of records. So maybe a hundred different LPs. I mean, at that time, there wasn't that many, you know, of course you had the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and some of these like 70s uh, punk stuff that were on major labels, but there wasn't that many records by hardcore and punk bands. So he probably had all, you know, hundred of them. And he would also sell demo tapes by local New York bands. So um, you could go to this little store in a, in a uh, it was in a storefront actually in the East Village on Sixth Street, and um, you go in there and see people that were into this music. And at that time, it was so uh, you know yeah, it was very underground kind of music. And you know, I knew a handful of bands, but you could go there and just see all these bands that you had never heard of by fanzines, and it was a way to learn about the music and learn about the the culture and the the whole shebang. So it was, that was a special place. It was called Some Records, and Dwayne was the owner of it. Youth of Today and yeah. Gorilla Biscuits and yeah. Pagan Babies and Side yeah. by Side, 1987. You know, this club has their policies. They're going to tell you what to do, but I'm not going to do it. Do what you want to do. Do you remember that at all? <laughs> Um, I do remember some of the, some of it. I mean, the general vibe was, yeah, I'm going to do it the way, you know, you would have that. Let's do it the way we want to do kind of a uh, thing like no parents, no rules. Uh, it was all run by kids. And, uh, and I don't know who the business owners would be that would let people do these shows. But, um, I do remember those bands and I do remember that bill. And I don't know, it was maybe that was something on the flyer or something that, uh, but that was the general attitude for all that stuff. You know, it was a, it was a movement for the kids and by the kids and uh, completely independent of, uh, of, of adult supervision. Because those at CBGB's and you were playing that night in Gorilla Biscuits. But actually, Ray said that from Youth of Today. And there were like 100 people on stage during his song Youth Crew. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. What so do CBGB's. What do you remember Amazing. about that? Like 100 people on stage at CBGB's. Uh-huh. And then at that time, I guess you weren't playing a Youth of Today. Were you doing double duty and also playing in Gorilla Biscuits or just one? Yeah. I was doing double duty at that time. And, um,. The uh, CBGB's was just amazing. I mean, when we went there, it was already famous for all the the talking heads and Ramones and all that kind of stuff. So as a teenager playing in CBGB's, I was just about as as big and and kind of uh, glamorous as it would get. And to have like 100 people on stage uh, was uh, incredible because you're just while you're on stage and you're in the band, you're also in the audience. So you are spectating and are not spectating, but you're, you're an active participant, not only from the performance side, but also from the, you know, uh, audience side. It's all the, the lines really blur. And I think that was one of the things that was really exciting about the music and also kind of took the pressure off trying to, uh, you know, put on some sort of rock show and took some of the pretension out of it. And um, in a way, so it was, that was really, nothing like it i mean you know that that was i was lucky to be there what's it like to have like a hundred people rush at you you were just playing bass or whatever and suddenly a hundred people jump on stage that must be uh, a rush it felt like success it <laughs> felt like well, well that was our aim so we were doing it right so it, it felt good you know and and everyone there is like uh is there you know they're completely letting go of uh whatever their stress or inhibition or about or about whatever and it's just everyone's having fun it, it was it was 
joyous. Walter, Gorilla Biscuits' first show was at CB's, but you mm-hmm. had actually Ernie Parada on drums? Ernie Parada, he was the drummer of Token Entry, and uh, he was sort of, he was very helpful and inspirational in putting our band Gorilla Biscuits together because he was older and kind of knew the scene better. And, uh, you know, we were younger and kind of learning about it, you know, like going to places like Dwayne's and some records and uh, trying to figure it out more. So he had some more instruction. He was a great musician. Uh, he was such a good drummer. And so um, before we got our own drummer, Lukey Luke, um, he played our first show at CB. So it felt like we kind of had, a, um, you know, a steady hand behind, behind the kit. And, and through this experience of like playing CBGBs and having 100 people rush you, we had someone that had, had experienced it. So that he was great. I mean, eventually he, uh, we found another guy. Uh, you know, our own uh, age and kind of built the band from there. But he was he was amazing. We were thrilled to have him. There's also a CB's at Newark International Airport. Is it still there? Like you could actually piss in the old urinal from CB's at Newark? You, you can't piss in the old urinal. That, the other stuff, yes. Uh, but that would be worth doing. Um, I saw they had a, a, the... Um, Museum of Modern Art some years ago, they had a, a, a punk exhibit and they recreated the bathroom to CBGBs in the MoMA, which was kind of cool to see. And I remember it being pretty spot on accurate. Um, but the one in New Jersey at, the, at Newark Airport is I think someone bought the CBGB. Or I know someone bought the CBGB's name and uh, is trying to figure out ways, I guess, to make money off of it. And so they have a uh, an airport restaurant there and the, the names of the dishes are like, you know, named after punk people. And, and uh, there should be a Gorilla Biscuit dish. I don't know if there is, but, the, you know, they, I don't know how, dig, how deep they dug. They might be stuck in the talking heads kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, I'm going to take – I've never gone. I've never gone. I've always wanted to. I'm actually flying out of Newark uh in january so i'm gonna drop by and see what's up oh amazing and we're speaking to walter from (laughs) gorilla biscuits also quicksand but what walter what are your memories of the cb's urinal like you know the urinal did you ever use the cb urinal the cb's urinal yes i i did um it was a little it was kind of uh especially you know the first year or so going there it was uh kind of a stress stress pee to go there because it was just they're hanging on the wall this whole messed up uh, environment that looks like out of a out of a movie, um, but yeah, you know it's really not much else to to say that's special about it. But it'd be two urinals and every graffiti everywhere. The real stress job is doing using the uh, the, the the actual toilets uh, because there were just two toilets sitting there exposed in the room with every, you know with the with the urinals. So um, to uh, go. Dude, drop a, a number two there. That's, 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 you gotta really go. How did you get your equipment, the CBs? Like, did you have to, like, use a van and have somebody wait in the van? How hard was it to get your equipment, the CBs? Um, getting it to CBs was hard in the sense that you, you know, we were teenagers. So, we, in, and in New York, it's not usual to have a, a, a car or driver's license. So, you'd have to have, to get a van, you'd have to, you know, know someone older to do it. Um, I do remember taking on the train, uh, my amp that really sucked. Um, you know, put it on a skateboard and, and roll it from, uh, eighth street down or down, uh, from sixth 
to uh, take the six down to Bowery. It was it was a hassle. But if you could get a car, you can you can drive her up right in front. Or if you had a van, I mean, later on we got a van, um, and you just pull right up. They come out. You know, people would be there to help you, and it wasn't bad at all, really. It was a nice load and a great sound system. And we're speaking here live to Walter from Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, Quicksand, as part of Crooked Walker, Roger Allen's hardcore show. And now we are turning it back over to Roger, (laughs) as Roger has a question regarding Moondog, right? Yeah. Uh, Well, you're moving the microphone. Um, Well, to me, it's it's really exciting to to speak with Walter. I distinctly remember in 1989 skateboarding over to my friend's house. I was listening to Lama, a Finnish band, and Void, a DC band. And he came out and he handed me the Youth of Today Can't Close My Eyes EP. And he said, I bought this at a show in Seattle. It sucks. Do you want it? And I took it and I brought it home and I listened to it. And I thought, wow, this is different. I've never... I've never re- I've never heard music like this. I've never read uh, read lyrics like this, and uh-huh. it began to grow on me. And I went out and I found this cassette of Gorilla Biscuits, which I've had ever since I bought it. I'm still carrying it around, and uh, kind of in a way changed my life. It was like a more positive music. I love the uh, more melodicness to it uh, outside of like Youth of Today, and mm-hmm. in in Vancouver I had the hoodie. The Converse, the high top, you know, the high tops, the shorts, mm-hmm. the shaved head. And right here at UBC, I came to Nardwar's uh, arranged Mud Honey show as a kind of a straight edge Vancouver hardcore kid. And no one knew exactly what I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what subculture are you kind of thing? And I was just curious, yeah. like, did you have any idea of the impact of the look of uh, the Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today's Bolds outside of New York? Did you ever tour and go into other cities and, and, and the youth crew wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Matt, the look was a big part of it. I mean, the when you said, like, what subculture are you? It was, uh, it was a way, like, um, we were punk, but we looked like suburban kind of jock kids, which none of us were. So that was the... So in punk we looked different and people at high school had no idea what I was into. They couldn't, they didn't get it at all. So, uh, that the look of, uh, you know, the, the kind of high top sneakers and sweatshirts and, uh, all that kind of stuff was a big identifier, you know, so things would look kind of normal, but there'd be certain little subversive cues in there. And also the, um, just the icon, the, the kind of graphics of everything was really yeah, the, strong and uh, identifiable. So uh, I think that was a big part of it. And, and I, I did s- see what, especially we go to Europe, you know, going the first time the Europeans would, or even, even around the States and in Canada, people were looking at the records and trying to figure out how to get the clothes yeah. to, to kind of ape the look. And, um, you know, going around the first time and people just kind of, getting it but not quite getting it right but there would be different twists on the look and uh and europe you know they just the clothes weren't available over there so they would have a a harder time with it but as uh, time went by the look got really dialed in and and um i think that's that you know any sort of movement um that catches on it's it's cool to have a uniform you know so that kind of worked out for sure roger where did you get your clothes uh, I basically, I got all my clothes at, uh, I got my sweatshirt right here at the university. Uh, I had, <laughs> had my UBC hoodie. I had, you know, and most of the other stuff I got just at sports stores. Like I was reading uh, the band Instead. They said we were all athletes and we liked punk. 
and then we began hearing this 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 sound this this hardcore yeah. movement and it appealed to us immediately and we just adopted what we were already wearing and then started playing punk music and we called it hardcore. Yeah. I think there was a lot of people that I mean in New York none of us were jocks. We just sort of dressed like it. Like uh, I think in California, Southern California, I think that was more of of a thing a part of it. Uh but also at the same time uh as sports like skateboarding was really big. So uh you know within our thing and like skateboarding now is um obviously like a huge huge thing and and it was a you know a big thing within uh, but it was a sub more of a subculture at that time so um that kind of infused into it and you know we were got covered the biggest magazines that we would get covered in would be like thrasher and from that coverage we connected to a lot of skateboarding too so that kind of affected the the fashion of it too and um you know, it's a real identifiable look and uh, it's it's a very niche thing. But, you know, I find so many people in um, it, it's a, a real interesting thing that the where the, how the, the different places that it's reached and the people that are interested in that kind of music or uh, discovered, you know, graphic design or, you know, went into careers in media and so on that were involved in this kind of music because it was super creative and, um you know, it, it was a tight community and uh, and it kind of gave people the tools to just do things on their own and not wait for other people in like established positions to give them permission to, to make a go of whatever it was that they wanted to do. So you find a lot of artists and uh, yeah, I think creative people and, and, you know, actually all walks of life. But I, I think it was very instructive for uh, for that. And we're speaking here live to Walter from Gorilla Biscuits, Quicksand, Youth of Today, Rival Schools. If anybody has any questions, it is 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. And you, Roger, mentioned coming out to UBC to attend a gig. But at that time in Vancouver, weren't there some straight-edge type bands like Spark Marker, like Strain, bands that ended up on Revelation, at least Sparkworker did right, 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 Walter. Yes, yes. The first time I came to Vancouver, Sparkmark Sparkmarker opened the show, and uh, it was an amazing thing to uh, to to go to Vancouver, which I had never had gone and would never have gone to if it if it were not for music, and then meet kids that were like into the same things as we were, uh, musical uh, inspirations, and t- making their own kind of uh, twist on this idea and they were they were great they were i think the first time we toured through the states they were or or through canada as well um they really made a big impression i thought they were one of the one of the best actually and they recorded also with don fury yes yes don fury's uh was the guy in new york city that recorded all the the classic revelation records and um he just had an amazing sound and, and a really great um kind of process you know he let the bands do what they wanted and he kind of like accentuated their strong points but he had a real technique to how he'd make the band sound and uh i think spark marker definitely benefited from that and it's also was a cool atmosphere you're in you know in soho in in new york but this is like pre-soho soho it was more just like a sort of a you know uh it was just more kind of like 70s feeling New York, even though it was the 80s. It, it still felt a little bit left behind. 
And the Canadian connection that you have, Walter, is so mm-hmm. strong. Like Dine yeah. Alone Records, named after yeah. named after a song you wrote. Dine yeah. Alone. You hooked up with a Canadian label. That's amazing. I, I met uh I met Joel, who's the guy that runs Dine Alone Records. Gosh, maybe it's like fifteen years ago. It's been a while now. And uh, you know, we used to play up in Buffalo a lot and buffalo is is neighboring right to you know it's very close to toronto and and um so we wouldn't go into canada to, because of whatever it was more of a of a you know getting the visas or whatever working papers so people would come down from toronto to see us play in buffalo and that 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 scene was really strong and just uh made a lot of amazing connections it was just like one of these lively scenes and um so Joel was a part of that in St. Catharines, which is, uh, you know, I guess south of, uh, of Toronto. And uh, so I met him, I don't know, maybe at a 15 years or something ago at a show and we became friends. And then he had it. He was doing management at that time. And then he wanted to do a record label. And he asked me if I if it would be cool if, if he used Dine Alone. And I was super, yeah, psyched and flattered and it's amazing to me how successful the record label is and, and on a, you know, on so many different levels on it creatively and um yeah commercially there's so many you know big bands on it it's, it's an amazing thing a canadian label a canadian yeah. label yes <laughs> strawberry alarm clock the strawberry alarm clock love them love them oh. the strawberry strawberry alarm clock are they on dine alone now because it wouldn't surprise me no they aren't but believe it or not the strawberry alarm clock are sort of connected to Corey feldman Yes, Corey Feldman's dad played in a version later on of the Strawberry uh-huh. Alarm Clock. And it made me think, did any kind of like Corey Feldman or Winona Ryder type people come out to, you know, Gorilla Biscuits gigs? Like Steve Aoki has a Gorilla Biscuits tattoo. Did any of those people ever come out like John Belushi, like Black Flag? Did Winona Ryder like Gorilla Biscuits? Like Goonies era people, I, I think we're sleeping on it. I think they were too busy. Um, I'm trying to think of like famous people that would come to our shows, but you know, I'm blanking. It's more interesting to me now the people that were into it then who have become famous um, th- than it is, you know, someone like St- Steve Aoki. Um, then at that time, it was, uh, you know, mostly, I guess, some skateboarders, but I don't know if it would, they would count as famous. You know, they were just known within this, this group. But, um, it would, I guess, when you think of famous people that were into hardcore, I mean, the, the BC Boys started in hardcore, uh, and they were pretty famous. But uh, they were part out of it by the time Grilled Biscuits ran. So it was, it was pretty underground, not glamorous in that way. Who later on did you find out was at a Gorilla Biscuits gig? Like Steve Aoki was later on. Did you find out like to have become famous? Hmm. I guess there's like. I don't know. I'm kind of blanking right now, but uh, well, it kind of happens every once in a while that someone's like, "Oh, so and so's into Gorilla Biscuits, and uh, they're an actor, or they're you know doing it." it, it I'm, I guess I'm, I should keep better track. Well, of I who guess it is. Uh, hold that thought for a moment, and we're speaking to Walter from Gorilla Biscuits live on CITR. I mentioned the Strawberry Alarm Clock, a 1960s yeah. band, and Love I them. noticed also you had the Arthur Lee EP named after Arthur Lee from the legendary 60s band Love. Yes, I'm a big fan. Um, I mean, I think it's just kind of. Uh, 
you know, it's just such a classic. Forever Changes is a is a forever classic record. I was lucky enough to see Arthur Lee perform it at a Town Hall in New York about ten years ago. It was incredible. But I love '60s music. You know, when I was a little kid, I was watching uh, the Monkees TV show. So like that era. Um, that kind of strawberry alarm clock, 1966, 68 kind of time is always like kind of magical to me. And, and there's so much incredible music from that era. Uh, in the United States, there's mostly out in California, like Love, The Doors, Strawberry Alarm Clock, or The Birds are a big one. Um, just that whole kind of like monkeys, Batman, psychedelic uh, aesthetic appeals to me, you know, from my, as a, as a little kid that was what i was into so uh, I, I love all that kind of music and obviously i mean everyone loves the beatles and i i'm, I'm not no different what about that 60s scene around new york like you mentioned duane's what about midnight records because in new york in the 80s they had like the fuzz tones mojo yep. guitars the headless horsemen were you aware of that scene at all because it was a huge kind of like 60s scene yeah i would dabble in it um I got into, you know, I would see the Chesterfield Kings, the Fuzz Tones, uh, Flesh Tones. Um, so I would kind of dabble in it. I was, a, you know, a little bit young for some of the shows. Like I couldn't, they would have to be all ages. And a lot of those shows weren't all, all ages. Uh, but the thing, and I was interested in the ska scene in New York. There was a really good ska scene in New York. And uh, that's where you'd see more of the famous people. Like, <coughs> like Molly Ringwald or something. It would be at a toaster show. But um as I got into hardcore, I kind of uh, ended up focusing on that. It was just, uh, I got kind of tunnel vision for it. But uh, I've always been interested in, in 60s music and, uh, you know, second generation, third generation, you know, revivalists. And it just always, I, I just have a soft spot for it. I'm, I'm always into it. But I didn't really travel in the scene circles because I um, I just was so into to the hardcore scene. And that kind of took up all my weekends, going to CBs and working on my band and, you know, checking out other people's stuff. And we actually have a phone caller. Caller, are you there? I am. Go ahead to Walter from, what are you from, Walter? What are you from? I'm going with, uh, right now I'm going to go with Gorilla Biscuits because we're on topic. Go ahead to Walter from Gorilla Biscuits. All right, that's funny because I'm actually calling because I was a massive fan of uh, Quicksand. Oh, cool. We can go back to that. All right, cool. Yeah, uh, I played the shit out of Slip. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was awesome. And uh, I can't remember, back, I'm from the CD era, so don't really remember names, but the second or third song was just, was just awesome. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, that that, that album, um, it's just, it's like you make a record and you want it to be good and you're trying to, you know, put all your energy into it. And when it came out, we were really psyched and we uh, we traveled around and did so much fun stuff on it. But the fact that people still gravitate towards it is just amazing to me. And uh, and it, it definitely grounds and, and fuels, you know, the fact we just put out a record two years ago and we're able to, like, come back and tour again and, and uh, kind of it's, it's amazing to me. So I'm psyched that that you that slip that you dig it. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's totally timeless. So here's my question. Um, I, w I saw you guys in Vancouver a few years back at the Commodore. And uh, oh, we, yeah. um, me and my buddies bought tickets immediately as soon as we heard about it because we were, we were convinced it was going to sell out. 
And then there's cool. only about only about half the uh, floor was full, which we're shocked at. And uh, my question is, if you guys were to come back again, uh, do you know of any other venues in Vancouver that you would probably play? I I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I don't play there often enough. I I guess I was shocked that half the floor was full. You know, because it's just amazing to me that we can Hello. still go up there and play to as many people Hello. as we can. Um, but you know, Hello. whatever the suitable venue yeah, is for for. But Vancouver is fine with me. I, it was, uh, it's really one of my favorite kind of special places to play because it's just, you know, I mean, coming from New York, it's, it's, uh, it's just not on the beaten path for us. So it, I remember that show though. I had a, it was a, a great one actually. Thanks very much, caller for phoning in. I cut you off by mistake. If you want to phone back at 604-822-247, 604-CITR. Sorry, I hit off. Uh, let's, uh, are you there, caller? Hello. Hello. Well, hello there. I'd like to speak with the guest, please. Oh, go ahead. This is a different caller. Go ahead. Well, Willie, I'd just like to just know what... Uh, am I speaking with him now? Yes, you're talking to Walter. Okay. Well, uh, well, hello, Walter. This is President Ronald Reagan. And, well, I, I, well, I would uh, like to just say... Uh, could you possibly... Well, uh, this is for Nancy as well. She's here. She's here. She'd like to say... Could you please relate the story, possibly of Donald Trump, possibly visiting your, the CBGB scene, or possibly any run-ins with any of the Trumps? And I'll take it away. I'll take my call off the air. Oh, let's call, call her. Do do loo do. Call her. Do do loo do. Well, there, young man. I appreciate your efforts. Do do. <laughs> well, I guess Ronald was wondering: Did you ever run into any of the Trumps at CBS? I, I didn't see any of them at CBS. I think that that wouldn't be their their thing, really. I mean, the Trumps, I remember the, um, you know, Trump, we grew up with Donald Trump here in New York. He was always in the newspapers and he's kind of just, uh, you know, a character. But I never saw any of his kids. And also, I think his kids are younger. So I, I think Ivanka would have been the closest to my age. So her, I get the feeling that she was not a downtown kind of girl at that, at that point. She wasn't a youth crew member. Not too much. I, I mean, <laughs> I haven't heard anything about it, but... Uh, yeah, you never know. You never know. And Could we, be. We have a question, actually, from Roger. The mm. Hardcore Show is your idea, Roger, right? The Hardcore Show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and you have a question for yeah. Walter. Yeah, going back to what you asked me earlier about Moondog, way back, I believe it was 91, I saw Walter's name in the credits on a comp called Look at All the Children Now. Mm-hmm. I bought that comp. I brought it home. I put it on. And uh, I was surprised by the sound of the bands on, on that comp, like Citizens Arrest, mm-hmm. Yuppie, Yuppie Side, Bustin' Out, mm-hmm. Bug Out Society. Uh, yeah. These were, I guess, uh, like Moondog, it was sort of like post-hardcore. And in, mm-hmm. in that little book, the zine that came with the record, uh, this guy Sam Against wrote, now that all the straight-edge guys are gone, the nerds are going to take over. And, ah. uh, did the, I don't know, did the nerds take over? Uh, I don't know. In a way, yeah. I mean, I guess it was more of a like built their own their own you know new society than than took it took it over. But I guess in some ways, yeah. The the um the scene in New New York got <clears throat> as it got more popular. Uh, more people from the suburbs came in, and so it got bigger. But then um, it's just a bunch of you know because it has this sort of like tough element to it. So the, a lot of bullies came in and we're just beating people up and i think the nerds just said this isn't fun anymore let's find a club where these bullies 
don't know about, don't want to go to. Would that be the ABC No Rio? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't like identify, I didn't identify anyone as a nerd. I thought of everyone as uh, these are the people that are here for the music and the cultural experience and not for the, the, the sort of tough guy thing, you know, which is, uh, I think just everyone, they, and so that, that, that kind of tough guy scene became a lot smaller because, uh, there was no longer anybody, they beat up everybody they could beat up and then they were just left with each other. And, uh, you know, whatever quote unquote nerd scene created a sort of more interesting, um, variety of of bands that that had different ideas about you know their political ideas or just more fun, a sense of humor and um more off the formula you know whereas you know we're talking earlier about straight edge um it, it was strong because it, it got really dialed in and very focused so you knew what it was so if you know what it was it, it travels but after a while if, if you have something like that it gets sort of stuck and then um you know, so I, I felt that, and so I, I related to uh, the thing that was going on in ABC No Rio because um, I felt that it had gotten just sort of stuck. You know, be, be, besides the bullies, I think even like artistically, the whole thing had just got a little too formulaic, and um, and I, I just w wasn't interesting to me. So it was that was that was a great scene. So I think that compilation is really special for that. I, you know, whether they took over. Um, I think they just kind of just started something else that that uh, had a life of its own and, and still resonates. Because the look of New York hardcore, a lot of the bands were quite svelte, weren't they? What would you describe <laughs> the look of New York hardcore being? A lot of like cut off shirts. What was the look? It wasn't really kind of small guys, was it? Uh, I guess, you know, there was a, a when I got into it, there was definitely an element. There was like the punk look. Uh, which would be your kind of like initial kind of uh, what would maybe draw you there, like Mohawks and, you know, uh, kind of this the 70s punk look crossed with, um, you know, UK fashion, you know, like spiky hair and, you know, bondage pants and all that kind of thing. But the New York hardcore look was way more um, kind of a runaway kid look, like just shaved head, T-shirt, jeans, chucks, uh, a, a hooded sweatshirt, very generic, uh, you know, basic ass clothing w with co combat boots uh, would be another part of it, maybe a trench coat. Um, and it was a very kind of basic utilitarian look, but with an attitude towards a little bit towards violence, I think. And so when you would go to the show um, and you would make it out without getting beat up, uh, that was kind of part of the fun that was part of the excitement getting into the pit and you know the pits would be really violent but there was a dance to it and there was an art to it and there was a a chance for you to kind of um use rely on your sense your senses for like when there's danger when to get out uh, of danger and uh so surviving all that and you know getting home and you know it was it was a very exciting sunday activity Caller, are you there? Yeah, I'm really there, man. I always wanted to say, I, I, I'm from back in the day, man. This is Johnny Mac. I'm the king of punk around Vancouver, just so you know. And, uh, nice. I, I, and you know, just say, if you ever come out to Vancouver, I will show you around town and just like none of this bullshit punk rock rickshaw stuff. I'll go to the best spots. You're very much, well, you stay at our place. 
and we'll show you out because you know that's what we do. You know, we take. Thank care you, of man. Them. That's so cool. Yeah. I I, you know I would yeah, love to do that. Because there's nothing but a bunch of sissy punk up going up here, a bunch of sissy lame motherfuckers up here. But I mean, that's neither here nor there. What I really want to say, and ask a mm-hmm. quick question about the name Gorilla Biscuits. Now, yeah. I was wondering, did you possibly get the name? There's an early. Remember the TV show White Shadow? There's a TV show mm, called White yeah. Shadow about a white basketball coach of, in Los Angeles, you know, coaching a bunch of uh, urban city kids. And in yeah. this one episode, uh, I don't know if it was Coolidge or one of the, bo- the guys that were trying to score some drugs. And there was this one lady comes up, she's all sketchy. She's all, oh, man, you got any Gorilla Biscuits? And she had 40 bucks in her hand. And I never forgot Gorilla Biscuits. I was just curious, is it named after any kind of like a lethal drug or any kind of like a good street drug that I might find? And I'll take my call uh, answer off the air. Oh, Thank caller, uh, do oh, do caller. What is this? Could you just stop? Do do Lutu. Do do. Adults are talking, please. Uh, do do Lutu. <laughs> Great. The White Shadow. I love the White Shadow, Walter. Me too. That was one of my favorite shows. I didn't see the episode with with the the Gorilla Biscuits in it though. So I w- that's not our inspiration, but it is uh it is a name of a drug. So that was we did know that. And um, I just didn't think anyone else would know that. And I just thought it was a cool, funny name. I, I, because I just heard it in conversation. It wasn't like, hey, this is a drug, you know. Well, actually, it was. Um, I did, it was in that conversation. But I didn't think anyone else would know it because I didn't know it. So it wasn't to say, like, take drugs or anything like that. It was more just like, it's a funny name, you know. And, uh, and so uh, we were going to change it at one point because we thought it was too funny and we wanted to be more serious. But it was too late. So, you know, and, I'm, and I love the name. It's great. Walter, winding up here, what is the biggest pit you ever saw? Like the biggest pit you ever saw? Wow. I just went to see the Misfits in at Madison Square Garden. And uh, it wasn't the best, most experienced pit, but it might have been one of the biggest. I mean, Rage Against the Machine would get pits, but this, this was uh, actually real punks that new misfits that was really cool to see misfits play madison square garden because it was just every single person that could possibly be into punk was there you know from the new york new jersey whatever people probably i'm sure were coming from europe and and uh as well but that that was a pretty big that was a big pit what were inside out like that is like pre-rage against machine what were they like what were inside out like uh they were cool like uh a little bit Dirt, like taking that kind of straight edge hardcore sound and made it a little bit more dirty and experimental uh, with a lot of like dive bombs and, and uh, kind of detuned uh, guitar parts. And uh, Zach, who went on to sing for Rage Against Machine, was, uh, yeah, he's just a force. You know, he had so much energy and he would just be screaming his head off. And uh, he was so engaged uh, in the performance. And, and I would say, because it didn't have like you know, Rage Against the Machine has so much of this the, the funkiness. Uh, inside, inside, I didn't have the funkiness. It was more about the aggression and the. Um, there was a sort of spiritual component to it that uh, you didn't see as much in Rage Against the Machine. So it was more of this. It was a little bit more visceral uh, on that level. But I mean, he's just such an amazing performer. But also the guitar player. Uh, the whole band was great. The guitar player, uh, Victor Caro, was also really amazing to watch. He was just r- unhinged. So they were a co- they were a cool band, and uh, we toured with them. Their one tour that they did out in uh, through the Midwest in New York, and um, it was uh, them, us, Quicksand, and uh, Shelter. And that was a really great tour. 
Do you say, Walter, slam dance or mosh? Because a lot of people say slam dance. I still say, still say slam dance, but people don't understand what I'm saying. Like, do you say slam dance or mosh? I say mosh. I mean, slam dance is, you get what that is, but it's slam dance is maybe more what I would associate with like the, the media idea of, uh, of what the dance is, you know, cause it just, it kind of mosh is more of like conveys the idea of like getting together and kind of threading these different, like, uh, you know, getting through this like tumble of ocean of bodies sort of, of how to moshing through it. Whereas slamming just sounds like I'm hitting somebody, you know? And, uh, and that doesn't sound like, I don't know. It's just like kind of one-dimensional dance to me. So I, I think of mosh. What about people stage diving? How do you stage dive? Like to me, at old punk shows, people would dive head first and like land on, land on their stomach, basically. But a lot of times, nowadays, when people stage dive, they land on their back. You know, they have the crowd land. How do you stage dive properly? Is it old school to have the crowd hold you up on your front? I know you have your family jewels on display there, but still, is it proper <laughs> to dive into a crowd and have the crowd touch your family jewels? Is that the proper way to do it? Uh, I mean, if the jewels are out there, they are vulnerable. I mean, you re- it is a leap of faith, you know, to, to ju- jump off a stage into an audience like it makes no sense it's it's a risk so yeah you're exposed um i think a key with stage diving i mean there's all kinds of different ways to do it different levels of difficulty and different levels of of danger i think a good way is to kind of plant your hand on somebody so you have someone else involved and uh you know kind of flip yourself over that way so that chances are you're going to float and land on someone perpendicular to their body with not the most force that you're going to hurt somebody. And if worse comes to worse, if no one's going to catch you, you're in some sort of position where you aren't necessarily going to have a concussion and, and, uh, and, and be a paraplegic after which happens for people that, that, that hit it wrong. But there's, um, you know, there's all kinds of risks. It's not, it, that's what's, that's, what's amazing for you. You're diving into, uh, into the void and that's that's the if, you, if you're not taking a risk with it then um you know that's a point in a way but i don't think it, no one needs to go home in uh in a stretcher you know if, if you you know if you, if you make take certain precautions you know there's there's a skill to it and there's a beauty and an art to it too and it's it's become really athletic i mean i see like kids now stage diving that have this whole like skateboarding athleticism to it and it's amazing to watch and sometimes really scary actually because they just go for it and winding up here with roger from uh, well winding up here with uh, i want to go to roger we're right. winding up here with roger doing a hardcore show on citr and the nardwar the human serviette radio show we're speaking live to walter walter versus roger on citr and you can speak to walter 604-822-247-604-822 citr and roger what is walter from could you explain who do we have on the line right now We've got uh, Walter, yeah, I have Walter of many bands and uh, Siv being one of them. But I, 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 this is more, maybe more of an observation. I thought um, Walter said something really insightful. Like for me, the more hardcore music I was listening to, my Hard Stance, Chain of Strength, Earth Crisis albums were stacking up and I began thinking like, I can't really decipher like one band from another. But um, I read somewhere that... Uh, Walter had said, much like listening to like My Bloody Valentine, 
you have to listen closer. You have to listen to the, 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 the sort of the different layers within the music, and you, maybe that'll bring you back to appreciate it. And uh, it did. I went back and I was I was listening to my uh, Chain of Strength record as a guy who's almost fifty with my fists above my head, screaming <laughs> as loud as I could. And uh, I also in the artwork, like on these um, albums uh, that are featured or these songs in the um, Look at All the Children Now. And I really like the illustrations by uh, Melinda Beck for uh, Moon Dog, and she's mm. gone on to do quite a bit of work. Is uh, any yeah. do you have anything to say about? working with the the illustrators of of that time yeah i mean she she was uh i knew her boyfriend uh jordan isip who was uh went to school with uh, a friend of mine at uh, risd and i loved her her illustrations she did these um uh die cuts i think they're called and etchings and um yeah just wanted to get away from you know the the kind of straight edge hardcore thing had a very graphic you know very strong graphic sense to it but i wanted to to differentiate from that so her stuff where these kind of like sort of ugly twisted characters um uh in these kind of strange uh scenarios and uh it just kind of lets your imagination go in a different different way and uh and just said it was something different so that the music could be contextualized in, in a new way as well and so uh yeah, I'm a big fan of hers, and and she did uh, she did the artwork for our second album, Manic Impression, and uh, yeah, she does a lot of she's a you know well known illustrator. She does stuff for you know the Times and New Yorker all the time. What about females involved in the New York hardcore scene? Like there was a band I think called Blood, and there was a War Zone Woman. What do you think about yeah. the? females involved like there's a great clip on the internet from like regis and kathy lee from 86 and donahue mm -hmm. from 86 and there's a woman there natalie jacobson she's like a yeah. show promoter what do you think yeah. about people like that like natalie jacobson were there any all female bands what was the representation back then like all new york all female rock you know band uh yeah they were they were there you know there was uh, i mean a lot of the, phot the photography you're gonna not gonna see them in the pit because it was so violent but you would like one of the greatest stage stage divers dancers that i can remember from that time was uh this girl named alexa i forget her last name but <coughs> so there was a lot of females involved um i guess they're just not as much in the photography because the stage diving was violent but as a result of like or the 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 dancing was so violent but um so if you were able to kind of like still hang in there where this was the activity these were interesting women interesting girls and and uh you know a lot of them gone on to do just cool things you know uh we were just talking about melinda or uh i'm not sure what natalie's doing now but she was you know th th there was a, a group of kind of um yeah, very cool girls that were were representative of the scene at that time, and uh, I guess not so much in the band side of it, but just you know, girls hanging out. It was it was a it was a cool place to be for you know as a teenager, and and um, and some girls could hang, and some couldn't. You know, some just it wasn't for them. When you first opened for Fugazi, didn't Quicksand open for Fugazi? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What was that like? Was that the first time you had opened for a minor threat Ian Mackay type band? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was really would have been the first chance to. So I, I was thrilled. I mean, I've, uh, I when I got into hardcore, minor threat were the main 
band for me or you know probably for most people they were one, one of the top bands so and they were just super cool and you know have been throughout the years you know i still see them once in a while and they're always just so so um i think they understand their role as uh innovators and um you know inspiration to so so many of us that that kind of came up in this track so they're just class act amazing band and uh just cool normal people how were you received opening for them really well yeah it was a good bill i mean we were kind of coming up at that time and they were uh yeah you know i mean they were established they were playing big rooms and people know who they they were but they were still on on the up you know and i think that was pretty much the story of their whole career, but it was a cool time to play with them. And um, yeah, they were very inspiring to, to everyone from our kind of world. You mentioned seeing Danzig, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Misfits, but you opened for Danzig. Did you get mm-hmm. to go backstage at the most recent, you know, Misfits gig or what was it like opening for Rollins, uh, opening for Danzig? And did you ever open for Rollins? Uh I opened up for Rollins with uh, Youth Today and and met him and uh, uh, Rollins band and they were amazing and he was super cool. Danzig, uh, he was just kind of on the bus. He wasn't really hanging out. He d- he had more of a, I would say he had he was more aloof, like rock star kind of vibe. Uh, but you know, it doesn't change the fact you know I respect his his work and and the first couple of Danzig records were really just amazing and definitely spoke to me and Misfits are just sort of a classic you know great band so I I got tons of respect for them but I guess they were I never struck me or that I didn't get to see that side of Danzig as like a kind of scene kind of person in the way that uh yeah maybe Ian Mackay was more would play that role more or even Rollins play that role more what about Dave Grohl when he played with Scream I saw Dave Grohl, uh, Youth Today played with Scream at a Rock Against Reagan, one of the earlier callers. Uh, I'm glad he didn't know that. Um, he might call back. Um, in D.C. And uh, Scream had two drummers at that time. And uh, I remember being impressed with this this drummer they had. He was amazing. Uh, but I never, our paths never really crossed. But, uh, you know, I met him maybe in passing uh, once some years ago. But, uh yeah, I mean, he's amazing. He's the sound of Nirvana, and, uh, you know, he's got legit punk, hardcore credentials. Scream was Scream were one of the greats, for sure. Walter, just winding up, who is playing piano in the background? It it's almost, my daughter. It almost, my daughter. It almost sounds like that transplant commercial, you know, the piano. The, the, it sounds like a transplant song. I think it's, uh, I think it's a song from, um, uh, what is it, uh, the opera, Phantom of the Opera. Which I, to me, it sounds, uh, I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. But he's like, Daddy, it's not that song. Um, so I don't know what song it is, but she's getting good at it. Yeah, that's amazing. Roger, lastly, you have a question here for Walter from Gorilla Biscuits. Or is yeah. this a question for Walter from Quicksand? Or is this a question from Walter from Youth of Today? It would probably be yeah. more of a question uh, for the Youth of Today side of uh, Walter. Um, mm-hmm. Something that I just found interesting, and I find all of this interesting, is um, I was reading in Jack Grisham's book, uh, the guy from TSOL, that mm-hmm. uh, he he noted that when um, uh, sort of the hardcore sound in its beginnings, like I guess before the New York straight edge scene was happening, 
uh, he noted that hardcore differentiated itself from punk in that it kind of got did away with like the the art the art scene of um, punk and that uh, hardcore kind of um, stripped away the fashion that new wave was kind of bringing into it and that mm -hmm. the hardcore kids were, were were sort of more suburban and they were used to running um, at the police as opposed to running from them which is what punks were used to and uh, mm -hmm. what, 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 you never really hear about any of like the, the police presence to like these kind of mobs of uh, kids that looked intimidating. What, what was that like in New York at the time? Uh, the police didn't really factor in that much. I think in Los Angeles, that's, or that, that's way more of a, of a thing. Like in New York, you'd go to the club at CBGBs. The police didn't really care about punks. They weren't, didn't feel threatened by punks. You know, that wasn't something they were worried about. So we didn't really have much of a anti-cop yeah, kind of thing that you hear in, in West Coast music. And I think the art of it um, was there, but it wasn't in a, um, it was a sort of anti-fashion art, a sort of like it would be more of a, uh, you know, a sort of less is more approach artistic, like uh, Dan Flavin, like Neon Lights on a wall or like Ellsworth Kelly, like just shapes, uh, you know, like not frills. It was more no frills, but there was, there was art to it. And, uh, and uh, certainly a lot of outsider art, you know, stuff that could just not be popular in any which way. I mean, I'm a big fan of TSOL. They're a kind of band that to me could have been a popular band, you know, but it just, uh, cause they had the songs, they had a great look. Um, they were as good as any band that was making cool music in the early eighties. Um, but hardcore could never, you know, the New York hardcore could not bridge that gap. There's no way that agnostic front would ever be on played on the radio. They sound, I mean, to me it's great, but it sounds pretty terrible to, to the un, uninitiated listener. It sounds like the worst music ever. So I think, I think the LA scene is different from New York scene and, you know, it, there was a lot of art in the New York scene and a lot of the background of, of how the scene came together was rooted in like Lower East Side artists. Um, but the police thing was not really, I don't know, from my experience was not as big of a deal. They weren't like focused on the hardcore scene or they weren't threatened by it. Walter, what about early Beastie Boys gigs? Did you ever go into those or Glenn Branca gigs? Wasn't Paige from Helmet in Glenn Branca's orchestra? Yeah, I've seen him with, I've seen Glenn Branca. I, I haven't seen, I saw Beastie Boys like early hip hop career, like um, when uh, the first album came out, but they had already kind of moved on by the time I was uh, started going to shows. They were, uh, they were one of the first bands I really loved in New York hardcore, but they had already moved on to, uh, you know, their first like cookie post was the single when I started going to shows. So I had kind of missed their hardcore stage, uh, sadly. But, uh, you know, they definitely were like a band people knew and, and were into. But um, this is like I got into started going to shows in 1985. So I was kind of like right when they they kind of got focused on the hip hop stuff. But yeah, Glenn Bronco was around. So, I mean, the, the, all that Lower East Side. Did you see Paige playing with Glenn Bronco? Yes. That, yeah. What was that like? It was cool. I mean, they used to rehearse at Don Fury's. So I would often go there and they'd be rehearsing with like, it would be, you know, 10, 15 guitar players uh, and Glenn uh, in this little room, uh, you know, trying trying to go through the numbers. I mean, 
I would have liked to have played with him at one point. I'm, I'm, I guess I was a little bit young to get, get the invite, but, um, but yeah, it was cool. You know, there was a, you know, talking about, you know, going back to Jack's quote about is like, there was, there was a lot of art crossovers, a lot of people that were actively trying to do something in that context within our little, you know, little square, a couple of miles of the, of the Lower East Side. There was, there was a lot of, uh, cross-pollination. What about the Wu-Tang Clan and leftover crack choking victim? Um, Wu-Tang, I can speak to Wu-Tang. I don't really know too much about leftover crack, but, um, you know, hip-hop is a big thing. Hip-hop is happening at the same time as hardcore, and we all went to high school, and we all went to school in New York, and so hip-hop was just, you were immersed in it at all, at all times. And, um, and it was a time when New York really monopolized the whole thing because i mean the west coast you know they eventually came up with nwa but before that there really wasn't much in the way of of, of any sort of competition uh, with new york hip-hop so we really just kind of owned it so that was a big uh everyone that was into new york hardcore was into hip-hop and that probably has has uh you can see it in the fashion too again you know w- with the, this kind of sneaker obsession and um uh yeah, some of the sportswear obsession. Were you ever on bills with hip-hop bands or any run-ins with the Wu-Tang Clan? No run-ins with Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, Quicksand played with Tribe Called Quest, which was pretty cool. Um, and uh, that's the one that I'm kind of, whatever comes to memory. That they, And they were, they were super cool. It was like some uh, college festival thing that we played. It was great. What about Ray's Candy Store? Do you remember Ray's Candy Store? Ray's Candy Store? Uh, not particularly. Get no. A, get, what, what, why is it notable? Uh, notable for the egg creams at Ray's Candy Store. You know, a lot of uh. some cool some cool candy. And winding up here, just lastly, Roger, you wanted to mention to Walter, Roger is here on the Nardware to Human Surveillance Show. Thank you so much, Walter, for Skyping in. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for Skyping thank in. Thank you, fellas. I, I had a great time. It was, it was great talking with you. I really appreciate you phoning in. But Roger is going to continue on. We're going to actually play something by you. We're going to, uh-huh. uh, and right now, going to play Gorilla Biscuit's Two Sides. Anything to say about Two Sides by Gorilla Biscuits? Uh, two Sides, what I have to say about it, I guess, oh, it's, uh, it's about just, you know, seeing another person's point of view, and especially in, in this uh, time of, uh, you know, massive polarization, and people just, you know, can't talk about any of their opinions about things, you know. I think um, being a little bit empathetic, trying to listen to people, get in their shoes a little bit, that's what the, this song is about, and I think it's... Uh, it's a, it's a good time. It still speaks to, to what's going on right now, I think, pretty well. And, Roger, you have a whole bunch else to play. Could you mention, Walter, just quickly what we're going to play, probably? Or we might continue on part two? <laughs> yeah, there might might be a part two. Uh, yeah, some of the other bands. I mean, we should mention DOA. Um, many, yeah. many say they uh, created the expression hardcore. Um, That's when you were saying earlier about the, the uh, middle class. I always think of... DOA as the first hardcore band just because they called it that so that's what but uh but I guess the middle class does have that those other distinctions that you mentioned well yeah DOA were around shortly after um middle class and black flag well and also have you ever heard of the band the gentlemen of horror I haven't no no they're they're another um bc hardcore band they had an album out in 1980 
Uh, mm-hmm. but, but also we're going to be playing the Bad Brains, Descendants, Void, Minor Threat, Freeze, MDC, Seven Seconds, Uniform Choice, Bold, uh, Stand Up. Do you remember the Staten Island band Stand Up? No, no. I, when, what era are they from? Because I kind of checked out for a little while in the 90s. So I, I don't know if uh, if they're around that time. I, they, I might just have missed them. They're uh, 1990. Yeah, so that would have been right about when I was looking outside of I, I just wasn't paying as close attention anymore right uh and yeah it's kind of just a timeline and then we're gonna end things with uh earth crisis wow we're in for it this is gonna be great well thank you so much walter anything you want to add to the people out there at all uh just uh it's been a great time uh talking with you guys and um uh hope to make it out to vancouver and and play more in, in canada and and see you all in person and why should people care about hardcore music? Why should people care about hardcore music? Hardcore music is like folk music. I mean, it's really coming from, uh, you know, from the people. And it, it doesn't require, it's sort of like amazing folk art. You know, you're, you're building cabinets. There's like structure to them. And, uh, uh, but there's no two cabinets alike. And you can make it, you know, there's basic principles to it. But everyone can have their own twist on it. And it's not about uh technique it's about heart and it's about um you know your enthusiasm and your willingness to 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 work at it and uh it's it's amazing for that and it's never going to be popular so you can't do it for uh you don't do it for these ulterior like you're never going to get rich making hardcore so you got to make it because you love it and i think that's a that's a special thing well, thanks so much, Walter. Coming up right now, Gorilla Biscuits from 1989. Wow. Yeah. 1989. With, Bring it. With two sides. Well, thanks so much, Walter. Keep on rocking in the free world and do-do-loot-do. Do-do to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, guys.
You're still listening to CITR, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show with special guest DJ Roger Allen. Roger Allen. And what did we hear there? We heard a bit at our interview with... Yeah, we, we were talking with uh, multi-talented Walter of Gorilla Biscuits and Quicksand. Quicksand and, and Youth of Today <laughs> and Rival Schools. And Moondog. And we followed the interview up with what? Some Gorilla Biscuits. Yeah, then we then we played a Gorilla Biscuits song um, because that was really appropriate. And after that, we heard uh, the California band The Dickies with Give It Back who that song was released in 1979, and their quick musical style is apparently what influenced the Bad Brains to play quicker. Then we heard uh, a local 
band, Gentlemen of Horror with Rough Hike, and they have the distinction of causing a riot in Kelowna when they played in a park bandstand with Penticton's Sick Society way back in 81. They were also reviewed in Maximum Rock and Roll, and they opened for the Subhumans at the Smiling Buddha in Vancouver. And eventually they turned into the? Grapes of Wrath. Then uh, they beat out Sarah McLaughlin and Joni Mitchell for a Polaris Heritage Prize, DOA with I Don't Give a Shit, off the album Hardcore 81. And possibly the inventors of hardcore. That term, hardcore. And we ended it there with uh, Bad Brains, Pay to Come, a super influential song and band that inspired a million other hardcore bands. Bad Brains pioneered the breakdown in hardcore, the positive outlook, musicianship. They used influences from other musical styles like reggae, HR's stage presence and high energy maneuvers. All of this were influencers that can be seen in just about every hardcore band of the 80s to come. Roger, thank you for assembling a lot of hardcore music. It's quite difficult, isn't it? Was this your hardest assignment? It was. It, it was because there's so many hardcore bands and there's like a lot of little subgenres and they, people can get real militant. In fact, there are militant uh, hardcore bands. And uh, I just didn't know where to begin. And uh, it was cool to speak to Walter as the voice of sort of hardcore. And uh, basically the show is over now, so yeah. And we'd like to thank Jordan, too, from Revelation. Yeah, he sent me um, he sent me some stickers and this record to give away, Ivy Leagues. So if anybody wants to win an actual Revelation 7-inch, 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. We can leave it here at CITR for you to pick up. And you win. Thank you, Revelation Records. And thank you, Revelation Records, for arranging our interview with... With Walter, yeah. I went I went through Jordan. I didn't, Like, I asked him, uh, Jordan, at Revelations, and he put me in touch with Walter. And he sent the 7-inch as well. So it's 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CATR. If you want to win this Ivy League 7-inch, thank you, Revelation Records. Thank you, Walter from Carella Biscuits. Thank you, Roger Allen. And right now, what are we going to kick into? We're going to kick into the high-energy stylings of D.C., who we, we didn't even leave New York, I think, practically for this whole show. Uh, of course, D.C., minor threat. You don't have New York without Ian MacKay screaming, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't... Ah! <laughs> but this is his brother. This, yeah, this is uh, Alex. Alec, Alex, right? Alex uh, in Void. And right after Void, we might play If There's Time... A Descendants song with uh, My Dad Sucks and the Descendants You're getting a call. Call, call. way before even DRI were mastering the 32nd song. And Caller, do you want to win? Hello, Caller. Hello. Do you want to win, Caller? Uh, yes, I do. Okay, just hold on the line and we'll take your name off the air. Okay. And doot do loot do. Doot do. Okay, hold on one sec. And so right now we're going to hear some Void and then... Descendants. On CITR Radio with special guest DJ... Crooked Walker. Do-do-loo-do, Crooked Walker. Do-do.
Welcome to Dorina Central. May I take your order, please? Yeah, I want. You want bill sperm with that? It takes a long time to get what you want. No matter how hard you try, it just won't come. But you keep on trying, and you don't give up. Hey, 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 hey.